welcome to the Basic Income Podcast. I'm Owen Poindexter. And I'm Jim Pugh. We run into this question again and again of how should we interlink basic income and racial justice because so many of our social benefit programs have consciously excluded women and people of color over generations. And this week we have someone whose work often centers around this question. So I had a chance to speak with Jhumpa Bhattacharya. She is the Vice President of Programs and Strategy at the Insight Center for Community Economic Development. She recently released a paper that talks about not just how a guaranteed income could help deal with the racial wealth gap, but also gender wealth gap as well. And so I had a chance to dig in with her on that. So here's Jim Pugh and Jhumpa Bhattacharya on the Basic Income Podcast. All right, Jhumpa, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So can you start off, just tell us a bit about what, what is the work you do at the Insight Center? Yeah, so the Insight Center for Community Economic Development, which is our full long name, um, is a national research and advocacy racial and economic justice organization. We're based out of Oakland, but do a lot of work nationally. And our mission is to ensure that everyone becomes and remains economically secure, regardless of their zip code, race, immigration status, or gender. Um, we do a lot of work around looking at issues of work and employment. We were one of the pioneer organizations to look at racial and gender wealth inequities. And so I would say a large part of our work and our frame is really looking at wealth and how communities of color, in particular black and brown communities and women, have been denied or have had barriers placed on them to accumulating wealth. So in the economic security discussion, I think what we're really bringing in, the frame that we're really working with is wealth as our North Star. So you bring up wealth and, and the importance of looking at that. And I think that's an area that it, it might be helpful to flesh out a bit, because we often talk about economic inequality and what almost always people are meaning by that is income inequality. But wealth inequality is, is a huge thing in itself. Could you just talk a bit about what the distinction is there and, and what the actual implications of that difference is? Yeah, I think that's a really important question. So wealth is really an accumulation of everything that you own, um, you know, all of your savings, um, your home, if you're lucky enough to have one, particularly in the Bay Area. Um, your income is a part of that, minus all of your debts. Right, and so I think one of the major distinctions between income and wealth is income is actually a part of wealth. And what makes wealth the thing that we at the Insight Center really see as a North Star in conversations about economic security is wealth is um, intergenerational, right? You're able to pass down wealth from one generation to the next. So my family's wealth, my parents' wealth has an impact on me on how much student debt, let's say, I will accumulate or have accumulated from going to school because if they had some wealth to draw upon, um, that then decreases my chances of taking out loans or going into student debt, right? Um, it also is something that could have helped with buying a home, right? Parents often help out um, their children in down payments for a home, right? So I think one of the major distinctions between income and wealth is that intergenerational aspect of it. And what we're seeing now is major wealth inequality um, in the United States, right? So the average black family has 10 times less wealth than the average white family, and the average Latinx family has eight times less wealth, right, than the average white family. And this is because of generations and generations of government policy that have helped certain communities build wealth, right? Mostly white men um, in particular, and have created barriers for other communities from building wealth. Diving in a bit on the implications mm -hmm. of that, because I think oftentimes when we think about good 
economic outcomes for people. It's like, oh, if you can get a job, but you're earning $100,000 a year, you should be in great shape. Mm -hmm. How does that fit into this? So what we've seen, again, is if you're looking at wealth across education levels, across kind of income levels, right, when you're looking at particularly the black-white disparities in wealth, we see that black families, even those that have gotten a PhD, let's say, right, when you're comparing them to their white counterparts, counterpoints, they still have less wealth. And that's because they weren't able to access as much from their previous generations. And so you're also seeing things like they are, um, these communities, it just, it's an accumulating factor, right? So wealth like crystallizes your economic stability, I think, across generations um, in a way that income doesn't. So you're just always trying to pay catch up. So even if you get, if you're that one person that gets a really good job and your family has been working class your entire life, your, your mobility is still going to be um, less than someone whose family has been in a higher economic class for generations, right? So I think it's not just about getting a really good job. You have to kind of look at the broader picture and ways in which our economy is set up to extract wealth, particularly from communities of color and this kind of constant um, way in which there's levers that take away money and wealth, particularly through like mass incarceration, um, Policing, like these are ways in which wealth is is stripped from communities of color that no matter how much money you make, you're still going to be in this hole, right? So you recently published a piece with the Roosevelt Institute entitled Exploring Guaranteed Income Through a Racial and Gender Justice Lens. Mm -hmm. What were some of the key takeaways that came out of that analysis? Yeah, so some of it I kind of talked about already. So we, I really wanted to approach this paper through a wealth lens, right? Because I think oftentimes, I mean, it's, it's within the name, universal basic income, right? The conversations are about income. Um, and being coming from the Insight Center and doing so much work around wealth inequity, both on a race and gender lens, um, the Roosevelt Institute and I just really want to dig in what what would this look like for wealth? If we say wealth is the North Star, wealth is what um, is a true key marker of economic security, right? Because it affords you freedom, it affords you dignity, it affords you choice. So it's not necessarily about the money, but it's about all the things that wealth gives you access to, right? Um, and that's kind of, I think, maybe another piece that differentiates wealth and income. So for me, you know, any economic policy that we're setting forth today has to take into account the ways in which people of color and women um, were gained, or blocked from gaining wealth, rather. And if we're not using that lens in, in a policy, economic policy discussion, I think what we'll see is that those inequities will continue in a cycle, right? So that, that's one of the major key takeaways is that um, any economic policy that we're talking about today needs to kind of come at it from the wealth angle, right? Um, I think the second takeaway was really just how policing, um, the move towards mass incarceration and criminal justice, which are all intertwined, right, um, are major wealth strippers that need to be tended to and, and paid, addressed, right, when we're having conversations about the economy, basically the extractive nature of our economy. Um, and talking about corporate power and just kind of this rise in really looking at profits over people and how that has desecrated communities, particularly communities of color. And again, that this this is really just a beyond policy, right? It's not just about one policy. We all, we're all looking kind of for a silver bullet answer to, to alleviate all of our terrible concerns that are happening in society today. But I think this is beyond policy. It's about changing narratives from like a bootstraps, personal responsibility narratives that are out there. I think this is about having a true truth and reconciliation process around race um, and sexism and the patriarchy, all of those things um, in our society in the way in which our economy is built on those things um, and around healing, right? So I think those are kind of the, the three major things. So 
in the U plus BI model, mm -hmm. we are we're bringing together two things basically. We're talking about a UBI, mm -hmm. and then we're talking about the plus, which is some targeted yes. transfers, which are intended to address these in inequities, these that have been created by our system, in, in some case intentionally, mm -hmm. of wealth between between different races <laughs> across genders and so on. So those are, I, I mean, you can look at those as as two separate things. Mm -hmm. uh, one of which is a way to share prosperity as our nation gains wealth; everyone gets to share in it. The other is, is addressing these wrongs. Mm -hmm. So I, I think s some people, the, the natural assumption might be, okay, we should address these, but we should address them separately. Your proposal is these need to be addressed, addressed together. Mm -hmm. Can you say more about <clears throat> why you, you feel that way? I think <laughs> you can't really look forward without looking back, right? I think to me, um, there's a saying like, you if you don't know where you came from, you don't know where you're going, right? So I think you can't just start by looking at what is it that we want to achieve without looking at how do we get here in the first place, right? To me, that's part of the answer of getting to where we want to achieve. So um, it would be, I think, a mistake to say a truly universal dividend where everyone gets the same is going to get us to a place of equity or equality or equity, I think, in, in particular without looking at the back right the back end of kind of how do we even get to this particular place you know today is whatever day it is how do how why is it that we have such stratification of wealth to begin with um we have to address those wrongs in order for us to get to the north star which i think for most folks is is equality or equity where your race your gender your zip code doesn't determine your economic and social outcomes which is what we have today right so i just don't for me they're just so closely intertwined you can't move forward without looking back for folks of color in particular, I think without acknowledging what's happened in the past, like there's not really a way to move forward. Like that to me, for me personally, as a woman of color, like to engage in that conversation, um, to say we need to ignore what's happened in the past actually is ignoring so much of my family's history, maybe not me in particular, but people of color's history in the United States and the, the way in which we've had government sponsored wealth stripping and barriers placed, right? Um, you can't just ignore that. Like that has to be taken into account if we're going to have a conversation about shared prosperity. So you do talk about both racial wealth inequality and gender wealth inequality in your paper, both of which are high and not what we want them to be. But it seems like there is a key difference between these, which is the intergenerational aspect, which as you mentioned, racial wealth inequality has existed since slavery and has been passed down from generation to generation, the lack of wealth going from parent to children. Uh, and then as well as being worsened by further policies that basically extracted wealth from black communities and, and transferred it to white communities. But in contrast with gender wealth inequality, it, it, it seems like it really doesn't make sense to think about intergenerational aspects since that's, that, that's not a persistent thing across generations. So I, I'm curious to hear it seems like that could be a pretty profound difference. What what does that mean for thinking about these together? Yeah, um, I think it's a really good question. It's definitely more complicated when we're talking about gender, right? Um, I think that one of the things, though, that we need to be looking at is kind of what are trends in society, right? So I recently did this paper on millennial women and millennial women of color, particularly racial um, wealth inequities within the millennial generation, right? Um, what we're seeing is that more and more women are choosing to have babies on their own, 
right? So what is it, 60%, I think, close to 60%, I think 57% um, of babies that were born to millennials in two years ago, I want to say, um, were born um, out of marriage, right? These are women doing it on their own, So, which is great. I think anything that allows women to have freedom and to make choices that they want to make um, is a good thing, right? Um, so if we're seeing a society that is moving more into women being not just co-breadwinners, but the primary breadwinner, and oftentimes the single breadwinner, so particularly looking at single moms, right? Um, and we know that there's still pay inequity, and we know that there were major um, barriers to wealth being put in for women throughout history, right? We weren't even allowed to have our own bank accounts, our own property until fairly recently in history, right? Um, so. I, you know, I think that we have to take that into account, like where are we going as a society and what does this mean when we know that women are not treated fairly? Um, women are still getting paid less, like I said. We don't have comprehensive paid leave. We don't, the work that is seen as women's work, quote unquote, um, is consistently underpaid. Um, we know there's occupational segregation, like all of these things, right? Um, so what does that mean in the context of a policy that is looking to lift folks up, right? Um, so I think maybe one way to think about gender um, wealth inequities is is to look at perhaps the, the single mom. And um, that's like a, a, a way to manifest giving single mothers more um, in terms of the actual what the dividend is. Um, and that might be a way that you're looking at a gender parity and a way to help with uh, gender wealth inequity. So it seems like since we're, we're not talking about this persistent intergenerational aspect, but we are talking about, in some ways, cultural wealth, if that makes sense, that the way that we've structured our society has these persistent barriers. If, when we're thinking about what is what is a plus in that case, is that a lot of that just changing the policies that we have, such that those barriers just aren't there? Yeah, I think that's a lot of it. I think it's about, um, so I think there's both kind of socially what needs to happen, like looking at the patriarchy and looking at um, sexism within all of our policies, right? And and naming that again and tackling that, um, which, is, which is real and I think will have major impacts kind of on everything, really. Um, but I also think that there are, there are kind of hard like political um, implications, right, for years and years of, of sexism and patriarchy that I don't want to just say is just like, I don't know, there's a way in which I feel like it could be seen as, oh, well, that's just the cultural thing. That's just something that, you know, needs to be done. It doesn't really have any kind of hard economic impact, but it does, right? right. Um, so I think maybe it's that. It's, it's, it's really forcing that narrative that um, patriarchal norms and sexism have real life consequences. And I think people don't necessarily see it that way. It's like, quite frankly, I think it's um, still recognized as like, well, this is this is a griping session for women, but what does this mean in terms of political power? What does this mean in terms of economic power? And I think making those ties more specific um, is probably the work that would go the furthest. And it yeah. seems like a lot of this- It's happening. Does, well, I was gonna say it comes, comes back to a question of power. Yes. That at, at its root- Yes. Do, are, are we all being empowered at a level that allows us to access- Yeah, that's right. I mean, and that's again, so it's not wealth for wealth's sake, for money's sake, but wealth is about dignity. It's about power. It's access to power. Um, it's access to political power. I mean, that's just the way it is in the society. We live in a capitalistic society. Money gives you power, right? So until we change that, which I'm all, I'm <laughs> all for, we can have that we'll, conversation. We'll that's we'll another separate. podcast, maybe. Um, then we need to really pay attention to ways in which 
women in particular um, for this question have been denied access to that kind of power. That was Jim and Jhumpa Bhattacharya on the Basic Income Podcast. I feel like the wealth inequality versus income inequality thing is something that I think it's pretty well understood right now, but still often gets conflated. And one income inequality, I think, is a little more difficult to talk about in terms of racial justice, because it feels like at, at this point, maybe we can have a playing field where everyone's on the same footing. And, you know, it's, you know, obviously, that's not always true. But, you know, going forward, maybe things can be better. But if you think about it in terms of wealth, you start to understand there are these long intergenerational trends, many of them intentional, that you know, go back to slavery, where I think that brings the racial and gender picture into much clearer focus. Yeah, I agree. I think that when, when you think about, okay, how close are we to actually having some degree of equity around in, in the racial space, I think that if you just look at income, it can seem like, oh, maybe this is a lot easier or a lot closer than than it might be, because incomes tend to be quite fluid. I mean, we've if you look at the data, you see this that over even a single person's lifetime, the range of their incomes can be quite substantial, and that a, a large number of people end up at some point in their life earning quite a bit. But oftentimes, it's it's a relatively small portion of their lives. I think for me, the the two things that really help to differentiate the wealth inequality and income inequality and why wealth is important to consider as a separate thing. First is, is that fluidity, that of income that might shift around a lot. Wealth doesn't. Wealth tends to be much, much more static. If you start with a lot of wealth, you're probably going to have a lot of wealth throughout your life. If you start with little wealth, it's pretty infrequent that you end up with a lot of wealth. And so it's, it's a lot harder to shift that. And then the other piece, I think, is is the power aspect because and I, and I think that when I say power I don't just mean like power to shift the world to your whim I mean like power to actually control your own fate because I think that be, uh, having that cushion having that security that you can tap into of however many tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars if whatever happens that really changes your outlook and the way you're able to approach life and I, and I do think that, that with the UBI, if we have a guaranteed income for everyone, that starts to get at some of that same element, that you do have that ongoing underlying security. But again, having a, a, large, a large amount of assets at your disposal if you need it, really, I, I think, is a mental game changer. Yeah, and I think there's a desire among some people, or maybe desire is the wrong word, but... There's this notion that if we can get a basic income, like a, at least $1,000 a month for everyone in the country, then maybe we don't have to have the, the racial justice discussion, or we don't have to have it as often, or it can shift to just about policing matters or something like that. And, and then maybe it's, it's a big part of the equation, obviously, but when you think about wealth, it's like, okay, but yeah, what were things like 50 years ago, when it's just obviously completely stratified, where you know, African-Americans and most other communities of color couldn't really build wealth in the way that white people can. And obviously that, that has effects. I mean, just the ability of parents to pass on their wealth to their children, that's kind of all you need. And I think that makes, with another, you know, big part of what Jumpa was talking about, which is a truth and reconciliation process, I think that clarifies it a, a lot for me and, and for a lot of other people where 
a lot of people just want to say like, okay, well, let's just get it right going forward. Like, like what else are we supposed to do? And sure, let's get it right going forward. But I think part of that is acknowledging how wealth has been robbed from communities of color, you know, basically since the founding of this country. And to get it right going forward means to kind of understand where we're coming from and why it means where we are today. I think what you touched on a second ago around this idea that if we get a UBI, then we don't have to have these conversations. I actually think that is, that's the perception that a lot of people who are advocating in the racial justice space, that's what makes people nervous around the UBI conversation is that is that idea of like, oh, all we need is this, and then we don't have to worry about it. Because as Jippa pointed out, there, there's really, if we're talking about building a society that everyone can thrive in, there are two sides to the coin. The first is, or one of them is, ensuring that everyone is getting a share of our success. And UBI does that. If, if we actually have a real UBI, such that everyone is, is getting their, however much per month, a portion of, of our national wealth growth, then that's great. We're, we're, we're setting things up in a great way going forward. But if we aren't addressing the harms of the past, if we aren't acknowledging that the different positions that people are in caused, as you said, by some very intentional policies a lot of the time, that is only going to ever get us that far because those things, it, if ever, it would take a very, very long amount of time for even a generous guaranteed income to be able to actually make up for the, the structural inequality that exists today. Yeah, and just to add one more thing onto that, I, I'm encouraged by how um, some of the Democratic presidential candidates, and just, it seems to be more in the ether, this idea of a wealth tax. Because, yeah, again, you balancing out incomes obviously makes a huge difference, but yeah, there's all this wealth locked up in property, real estate, and if that's just allowed to pass on from family to family on down through the generations, then, then yeah, people who you know, missed out 50 years ago, um, they're, they're just going to continually be behind. And there's not a whole lot you can do about that. One other thing I'll note is I, I thought, and this came up in, in the discussion with Jumpa, but that something I think is important to emphasize is that when we're talking about dealing with, with these two things, it's this forward-looking way of ensuring that we all share in prosperity and this backwards-looking way to address past wrongs, I think thinking about them as something that can be complementary but also view them as two separate things. Because I, I think when we're talking about uh, uh, making up for these past issues, being explicit that, oh, this particular program is helping to remedy this inequality that we have baked into the system, and then the separate part, the universal income part, everyone getting a piece of that going forward, those two things, I think they can be pushed together as part of the same package, but I do think that being specific of what you're trying to address with each one will help people understand why there's gonna be aspects of this package that, that are targeted, that, that do aim to support certain people more than others. Yeah, I think, you can talk about basic income without talking about racial justice, but I think it's good to be explicit that we're not solving the problems of racial justice by instituting a basic income. Some things will get better. Everything, hopefully, will get at least a little bit better. But, but yeah, it's not like everyone's equal now. Like, hooray, we did it. 
All right, that'll do it for this episode. Thank you for listening. Thank you to our producer, Eric Davidson. And if you like what you hear, please do rate us and review us on the podcast service of your choice. And do tell your friends about this. We are always looking for new listeners. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you.